Welcome to Emory Innovators, a series of conversations between the Hatchery, Emory University's Center for Innovation, and Emory alumni who are innovation leaders or entrepreneurs, or have taken innovative approaches to designing their careers and disrupting their industries. Welcome everyone to this episode of Emory Innovators brought to you by the Hatchery Emory Center for Innovation. Today, we're excited to welcome special guest Brian McGrath Davis. Brian has been a researcher at Harvard, managed a sandbox of a billionaire, co-founded two startups and run a hundred mile ultra marathon twice in two months. He began his career in academia where he earned five degrees, including his PhD from Laney Graduate School Institute of Liberal Arts in 2013. His academic curiosity translated into a unique approach to building businesses. And as an entrepreneur, Brian has spent the last 14 years in consumer startups. He was part of the early teams at Smile Booth and Scout Mob, managed Blakely Ventures for Sarah Blakely, sat on the leadership team at Spanx, and co-founded biotech startup Super Sapiens. He is currently building a consumer wellness startup in stealth. He thinks in terms of brand and strategy, but at the core, he's a deep generalist who is most alive in the middle of a problem, connecting the dots and finding the best way out. Brian lives in Atlanta with his partner, Cam, and his beloved dog, Paul. So Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks. So today we're gonna to dig into your uncommon career trajectory a bit, uh, your many startups and some of the more intense side hobbies that have kept you on the move. Uh, but given that one of our primary audiences is Emory students and alumni, uh, let's start with your educational journey and how it has influenced your work as an innovative thinker and an entrepreneur. Could you tell us a bit about the degrees you've earned, uh, where you went to school for each? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, and, and thank you for having me, Shannon. I'm excited to chat with you about this. Um, yeah, five degrees is a fair bit, um, if especially if you end up not being an academic. Um, but the plan initially was to be an academic. Um, and so I did undergrad and a master's degree, both in religion at a small school in Tennessee called Milliken College and then went up to um, Boston, where I was a researcher at Harvard's Pluralism Project, did my second master's at Boston University, again in religion, interreligious dialogue, and uh, gender studies, and then moved to Atlanta actually in 2007 to do the PhD at Emory, um, which you, you know, as an attaboy along the way, they give you an MA. Um, so that's that's the third master's and the PhD. And the work that I, I've actually moved to Atlanta to do was in philosophy, gender studies, theology, um, big questions about life is how I talk about it now in the business setting. Um, but the path was to be a professor, um, to be a scholar, to teach, to write. And um, along the way, I encountered the startup world and truthfully fell in love. Um, and so that is there's a point at which I took, you know, took the, the, made the decision to leave academia and go down that route, um, which was not an easy decision to make, um, but one that I'm grateful that I made. So academia kind of um, sunsetted probably about 12, 15 years ago, and um, I've been working in startups since. Hmm. 
so I'll say on a personal note that one of the reasons we were excited to talk to you is that your story resonates for us personally uh, as a mm -hmm. former academic who left and went into the corporate world and ended up doing innovation work. Uh, and also on behalf of our programming manager who was an MDiv uh, and was interested in many of the same questions you were uh, and ultimately learned to apply some of that big picture thinking to civic accelerators and other innovation sort of environments. So I'm wondering uh, in that context, if you could reflect on how for each of these degrees and institutions, there were sort of key takeaways, and those could be a particular learnings and experience, a human connection that has been of real value to your work as an entrepreneur. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the big takeaway from my academic um, career, my time spent in study, uh, you know, it's really, it's two things. One, just what the, what a privilege it is to be able to pause as an adult and study really anything, you know, at the time now to be able to pick up a book and learn something, whether it's fiction or nonfiction now feels like a privilege. Um, and so I'm, very grateful that I had, gosh, 12, 13 years of graduate school to think about the big questions of life. And um, what I, I think my big takeaway across the board from all of these um, is that it starts to get kind of existential here, but being human is hard. Um, and, you know, one of the, one of the early lessons that sort of the things that clicked for me, especially when I was studying world religions is being, being human is hard, it's not easy. And uh, religion for you know, one takeaway, religion is something that helps us to be human. Philosophy is something that helps us to understand what it means to be human, right? So I think that sort of big picture view, I mean, there are obviously translations of thinking about you know, the problems that consumers might have or just having empathy in general for as a, as a bedrock of doing business really for me is rooted back to um, that sort of fundamental understanding. And then I think another thing too that, that I take, and there are very few people that would make it to Laney Graduate School to do their PhD that wouldn't show up with some degree of imposter syndrome of thinking, looking around the room and thinking, man, these people are way smarter than I am. Uh, I've got a lot to do to keep up with these folks. And I think that humility, but also that hunger to learn um, is something that I've taken with me. Uh, and less the imposter syndrome, because I think that that to a certain degree has to sunset into the startup world because so much of the startup world we do because we don't know how to do it. And that's part of the exciting part about it is we've got this new technology we're going to run with, or there's this new platform that needs development, or there's this, can we mash these things together and create value for consumers? And so I think that sort of that fundamental curiosity and humility is something that, that, that stayed with me. Mm. Um, that's an interesting set of comments, uh, and I especially like this thread uh, about imposter syndrome, syndrome being part and parcel of environments where you're tackling big questions, and inevitably you feel there are folks surrounding you who are smarter than you, more capable of handling these things. And that there is a connection to entrepreneurship in that it somehow undoes this, whether it's because uh, you can only, you don't know in advance. And so it's through the process that you learn. So by definition, maybe nobody is further ahead than you, or perhaps it's that uh, by doing, 
you become clear on the fact that there is no better solution than just the doing itself, right? So there is no better and, and, and worse. There is just a solution through process. This makes me wonder in particular about your degree at Laney, um, PhD being the highest of the degrees you pursued. And I know from our previous brief conversation that it took a rather non-traditional approach. So I'm wondering if you could maybe talk a bit about that, how, how your original intent as you entered the program was one thing, and it might've been accompanied by this sort of imposter syndrome how the work evolved and whether it was here that that imposter syndrome began to dissolve or it was later in the entrepreneurship work? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, my journey even at Emory was interesting. So I came into the religion department um, with, uh, I basically split my time between religion and what was then called women's studies. Uh, and was really looking at two different um, two different schools of thought um, approaches to thinking about you know this bigger question of what it means what does it mean to be human theological um, apophasis or apophatic theology um, sometimes called negative theology and queer theory both of which break down assumptions on what we can know and how we might put labels on things and that was super compelling to me and super exciting and. I remember just, you know, for instance, um, reading about, you know, French philosophers in the 60s and 70s and daily having my mind blown by the stuff that I was, you know, reading and thinking about. And um, definitely in those French philosophy classes, that's where the, that is where the imposter syndrome was about as thick as it gets. Um, uh, understanding Michel Foucault was, uh, was, it was a heck of a challenge, but um, something I carry with me is I'm proud to have, have had spent some time reading his work. But the transition really came honestly when um, I, I'd started to work in uh, work in and around startups, and so that was kind of happening in the background. And my professor that I came to work with left and took a chair at Harvard, and so there was this question. This was a, a year into my coursework, so I'd been here for a year, planned to be here for three to five years to work with this guy. And a year in, the guy that I moved here to, to work with, he leaves to actually go back to Boston, where I moved from, to take a chair at Harvard. And the question was, do I go with him back to Harvard, back to Boston to, to finish the degree at Harvard? Do I stay at Emory? Um, so that was kind of this moment of, of, of for a student at least, a moment of crisis. Uh, and at the same time, I'd been doing this work on the side. So one of the nice things about being a Laney graduate student, or at least at the time, is I could audit classes and other departments. And so I started, started auditing a lot of these visual theory and photography types of classes. And that just meant that I ended up spending some time almost like as an elective um, within the visual arts um, department, which is an undergraduate department. So I ended up taking all of the photography classes then I ended up TAing all of the, the photography classes um, and took that work that was really a hobby on the side um, and some, something that someone gave me early on in my graduate work was, look, writing a dissertation is gonna be something that can be very lonely. So make sure you have some things that you can get your hands dirty with outside of the books. And photography was that for me. And I was doing, um, actually doing a project um, just for fun really of photographing Emory's Briarcliff campus and starting to research its history. And as I was having this moment that my professor is leaving and I was wondering, man, should I keep doing this academic thing? like? I think it hit me at the time that tenure was going to be another 15 or 20 years of like 
work. And then I'm thinking, I'm looking around and thinking, man, we are the smartest people on this planet. And we're going to go get jobs making $50,000. We're all going to celebrate. Like, how does that make sense? Like, how does that make sense that, that we're going to have to continue working so hard and being undervalued? And so for me, it was this moment of like, well, shoot, do I just leave and just go to do business now, even though I had no idea how that would happen. And I got an invitation from the Institute of the Liberal Arts to basically say, look, the work you're doing around visual theory, around uh, emotional geographies, documentary photography, bring that in and let's stitch, let's stitch something together within the Institute of the Liberal Arts that you can really focus your energy on um, to finish this degree. Uh, and so I actually did my comprehensive exams in the Institute of the Liberal Arts um, and really put the, the, um, the religion, the philosophy, the gender studies, that all stayed with me, of course, but I kind of put that, that was sort of the, the, the switch. So came into one department and left through, the, through another. Hmm. Um, I feel like there is quite a bit there to uh, unpack. Uh, everything from the ways that certain frameworks like postmodernist French philosophy can, can really give you that imposter syndrome. That was my experience. I was a French literature PhD, and so I was struggling with those same texts in French. And uh, certainly that's, that's enough to kill anyone. Um, yeah. And then finding those other outlets that were both creative and critical, that's something that I think we, we may want to delve into a bit, because it seems like a lot of what you're doing is finding interesting and different ways of framing questions and solutions. And that's been a theme in your, your study and your, your entrepreneur, entrepreneurial activities. Um, one of the things that we often talk with guests about uh, for the benefit of students in the audience is that transitional moment from study to professional life, right? Student life to professional life. And yeah. it's often very difficult. Um, and in your case, it was a very interesting one because you're already considering so many different options. You are already broadening your perspectives uh, through this PhD program and embracing a lot of different theories uh, and big questions, as you put it. So I'm wondering if you could reflect on that transition, what it looked like, and uh, how it led you more into the startup space. Because you mentioned that that was already something starting to happen. But you know, what about this moment of transition took you there? Yeah, that's a good question. So, I, um, you know, I think sort of the, the natural transition was a friend of mine. Um, I, I worked as a graduate student, was working uh, in the library, and a friend said, "Hey, one of my friends is one of the top ten wedding photographers in the world. Would you be interested in getting to, you know, to get getting to know them?" And I said. I said, and at the time this, I was doing this documentary photography work and I was like, no, 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 like I'm a real photographer. I don't do the like weddings and baby photos. I don't do that. And look, kind of looked into it. And I thought, man, I can make some money on the side doing this. This wouldn't be too bad. And it turns out that that photographer um, also was the founder of this photo booth company that was starting to take off and had a very small team. And so I started to um, help out there and learn quite a bit about the business and doing that and also saw the limits of being um, someone that's helping out on a company where there are uh, two or three owners where there's no equity coming your way and I started to see the path of okay if I want to get involved in doing something like this there's going to be a ceiling of how much I can contribute and how much I can participate in the success of a company and uh, you know I remember thinking to myself well maybe I just need to 
if I want to do this startup thing, and this is this is a couple years, you know, after um, after spending a year or two with with Smile Booth, and even when I was in Boston, I worked in um, sort of my way into the startup scene was working um, just off of MIT's campus in an early tech incubator called a Cambridge Innovation Center. And I got to see, you know, Google's Northeast office was there, Linden Labs was there, startups that were one people up to, you know, a whole floor of, of employees. And I started to see a different way of thinking, um, a different way of doing business than I understood it to be. I, I think I had a corporate model kind of built into my brain and to walk through the Google offices and see um, work being done was just kind of eye-opening. So then spending time with Smilebooth, I thought, man, I think I want to do this. This is the, the interest here, the curiosity here, the rabbit holes that I could go down here, but I got a lot to learn. And so at the same time that my, I was trying to decide, you know, how to finish the degree um, shortly before transitioning to the ILA, um, I actually got on a plane and went to Silicon Valley and I didn't really know what I was gonna do there, but I had a number, I was doing the friends of friends thing. And I talked to friends at Palantir and friends that worked at um, Google, friends that worked at Apple. And I didn't even know what to ask. I was just like, I wanna come work for a startup. I can do anything, I'll write. Maybe writing is something I can do because I've been, a, I've been a, uh, an academic, so maybe I can write. And I came back from that and had one important thought and one helpful resource. The first important thought was, I don't need to race off to California to, to pull on this thread. There are plenty of dynamic startups happening in this town. And this is 2011, 12 timeframe. The two most dynamic at the time were really Scout Mob and MailChimp that were getting traction. And so I made the, the choice to uh, try and corner somebody at at uh, at Scout Mob to um, to give me a look. But what I did before that, and I, I put this out of sequence a little bit, but what I did before that was somewhere along the way, I heard that the Alumni Association um, would sponsor one career counseling session with um, a career coach, um, Jody Charlip, who. I thought, well, that's you know a free hour with this woman who can help me think through how I transition this. I got a lot of fear, a lot of uncertainty about how to move my way through academia and then pick up the pieces for how I could uh, you know uh, transition into business. So I met with Jody, and she helped me to see the translational um, elements of my skill set. Right. So if I can. For instance, if I'm a super dynamic professor from the, and I'm super engaging from the podium, maybe that means that I could, those types of skill sets could translate into sales, for instance. Or if I am, um, if I'm doing work that is, you know, central to um, a vision for how, and I'm thinking, you know, um, bleeding edge startup world where how, how, how we can evolve to be a healthier um, human race, that, that is something that can translate pretty nicely into um, some uh, biotech type of uh, startup scenes. Um, the point being is that I felt like, oh my God, I've studied religion and gender studies. Like if I don't teach this stuff, I have to go work for a nonprofit. Like nobody's going to hire a guy that knows a ton of shit about Hinduism or can tell you, you know, who Judith Butler is and why she's a founda why she's a foundational person within the queer theory um, apparatus. So seeing that, oh, wow, I actually, I, I have something to give. I got a lot to learn, but I have something to give. And I took that element and I, again, friend of a friend, used my network to um, 
get a meeting with the CEO of Scout Mob. And I said, look, here's the deal. I'm going to be the smartest intern you've ever had. I'm coming in. My gamble is within six weeks, you're going to offer me a job. And if you don't, then you've lost nothing because, you know, a 30 something guy is going to roll in here and sit with the kids from Georgia State who are helping you um, as the interns. I'm happy to be an intern, but you got to give me real work to work on. And so I came in and that was really the opportunity that allowed me to get my foot in the door. And then it was everything from like, give me good projects. Let me sit in that meeting, um, taking people out for coffee and really working actively on uh, my network. And at the same time, like the imposter syndrome, I remember distinctly sitting in a boardroom and somebody said something about AB testing and I never heard it before. Right. And it was great. It was just like, what the hell is AB testing? I Googled my way through it, right? I figured it out. And um, and I think that one of the conceits within business, of course, is that people show up as experts knowing what they're doing. Everyone's still figuring it out. Like we, ha we have some idea of what we're doing, but we're all figuring it out. And so I think I just had a really good opportunity there and just got lucky to be able to try my hand at it. And um, it ended up working out for me. So I know that, uh, you know, I could go on all day about the conceptual questions around uh, learning and career, uh, but I think you've said two things that are really concrete that can help us make a bridge into uh, more questions uh, or diving deeper into your entrepreneurial work. And one is this idea of finding the translational aspects of your skill sets, no matter how you've trained, and then Googling your way through it. Right. And if you can do those two things, then you can make that transition from just about any uh, field of study to another, any career to another. So let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, as you really started to transition more and more into uh, entrepreneurship. Um, what was the first consumer startup? Was it Scout Mob was the really the first that you got involved with uh, to some, you know, real extent? Yeah, that was that was a first. Um, I mean, certainly spent time at Smile Booth and time at, at Cambridge Innovation Center. But Scout Mob was the place where I really got to cut my teeth and, you know, really leveled up and learned so much in such a short amount of time. I think I was there for four years um, and um, you know, literally came into the company as an intern and left um, just um, as I was being offered the, the title of COO. So if that gives you an idea of, of you know, how I was able to, to level up there. Um, and I do think that it is, um, you know, something else that I think is important in thinking about um, Googling your way through. You know, another thing that was really important to me was to start to um, build colleagues in the space. And I had a mentor early on saying, look, do a, do one coffee a day, find somebody to meet with once a day. Um, and of course that's during a non-pandemic time when you know people would, would gladly get together and, and have coffee, um, but that helped a lot too. And so I was just super intentional about the learning process. Um, and when opportunities came up at Scout Mob, for instance, I jumped at a new project when for instance, when Pinterest first launched their ad, ad technology, I knew nobody knew how to make ads on Pinterest or how to run their, the ads platform because it was brand new to the world. So I volunteered, I got this, let me learn this. Uh, and that ended up being a way, my, that ended up being my way into marketing, right? And when, um, you know, when the head of product at Scout Mob left to go start another startup, here's this opportunity to all of a sudden learn more about design and development. And so I started to learn 
uh, a coding language and ran product for a period of time. And so the, the, the decision to jump in at those moments to try and learn very much taught, you know, treated it like a student um, would sort of voraciously consuming content. I was trying to, to learn as much as I could. So it's interesting, you, you saw those translational aspects, it got you in the door. Uh, you then really worked hard to make the human connections. You volunteered to learn the new skills. You began seeing connections between interrelated fields of endeavor. There is a question though, at a certain point of why then not succeed within uh, an established environment? Why step out on your own? Because you had certainly identified that you could uh, pursue some of these aspirations that had taken you to Silicon Valley initially here in Atlanta. But if you're able to work your way up that quickly within an organization that you really like and where you've been learning a lot and you're offered a title like COO, why then decide to step out and be an entrepreneur? And what gave you the confidence that at that point you had mastered enough of the fundamental skills that you could do that successfully? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's a transition, right? I mean, even as I hear you say that I, you know, the confidence that I had mastered, I think I'm still figuring out what the hell that means. Um, <laughs> But the, the sort of the, the big shift for me was when I was at Scout Mob, we were in the process of selling the company. And I was, um, I owned that book of business and those relationships and was going through the process and realized, okay, if we're successful at selling Scout Mob, it doesn't make sense for me to stick around. So I got to figure something else out. And, um, you know, one of the things that I learned and is really important for people to know when they're trying to transition from academia to business or nonprofit to for-profit or for-profit to academia, whatever it is, whatever the transition is, is that the weird background becomes a killer asset. The weird background, um, I mean, Shannon, you know this, I mean, the weird background becomes the thing that people want to talk about. It is, it, it's what makes you ask what seems like just a crazy question that takes a complete different turn of a conversation in a meeting room, for instance, and it becomes this special sauce that you can bring. Um, I think one of the things that is for me that I bring as a special sauce in that regard is I came up in academia where, you know, you raise your hand and you have an idea, you write papers about a very specific perspective, um, which is very different from coming up and say, you know, Coca-Cola or Home Depot, where you do what your boss tells you, you get in line, you work your way up the ladder and you're a career person. And so, those two things can be in conflict, but it meant that um, I was never afraid to like have an idea, for instance. Um, and so I think that the main piece there is to realize that your weird background is an asset, not something that to be afraid of, but something to really lean into. Um, and I've seen that time and time again um, be an advantage for me. And actually, when I was leaving Scout Mob, I knew that I wanted to go work for a small company. I wanted to learn a hell of a lot more. I wanted to um, test my test my chops at doing entrepreneurship on my own within some degree of, of structure. And Sarah Blakely, the founder of Spanx, um, has uh, an organization called Blakely Ventures where it's kind of a sandbox for her to test new business models. And she had a business concept there that she needed help running point on. And I had the digital marketing experience, right? Because I started with Pinterest and I learned more and more and more. And I'd been doing e-commerce. And so I had something to say. And you know, one of the things that's wonderful about um, Sarah, Sarah Blakely, is Sarah also has a really weird background. She was selling 
fax machines and had this idea to go do something. And, um, and is also a person who just is not afraid to ask um, dumb questions. Um, I've been in meetings with Sarah where, um, and you know, her husband, her husband, Jesse says this in a really lovely way, way where you hear questions that sound like this, Lucille Ball, Lucille Ball, Lucille Ball, Lucille Ball, Albert Einstein. She's not afraid to say the silly things or the weird things or the kooky things to then get to the thing that blows everybody's mind. Um, and so that different approach that Sarah brought to doing business was something that was super attractive to me. And of course, to be able to learn from someone like her was also something that was super attractive. And I knew going from, you know, a 50 person startup like Scout Mob to working for a billionaire managing her personal, her personal sandbox, helping with the family office, being on the leadership team at Spanx. The one thing that I did, one thing I recognized pretty quickly was, all right, I'm in a different territory now. This is a different, there's a whole different situation. And I'm going to totally screw this up if I don't, if I'm not mindful of the fact that I've gone, you know, where I would typically take a rung at a time, I just jump seven rungs. And that's the first time that I looked into hiring um, an executive coach to basically be like my therapist for work, to help me understand how to navigate, to bridge the divide between, frankly, the where I still need, I still needed to learn how to be a business professional. Um, and getting that coach was something that was super helpful for me to, um, to transition into that more, that, that a little slightly more corporate type of role, but definitely not corporate at all. And in that role, I was, you know, testing business models for Sarah, doing some, uh, you know, helping on some investment work for Sarah and starting to see the entrepreneurial word, world from a different perspective and mm -hmm. starting to have my own small team and um, with plans to potentially launch a separate product or company with her. And I think in that process of just being around more entrepreneurs, I realized I can do this. I know how to do this. And the things I don't know how to do, I can hire people that are smarter than me. Um, I've certainly been able to fill in the gaps with Google and advisors and mentors and coaches and colleagues. Uh, and so I saw the, you know, and another thing is like sort of another thing that is, um, won't be, won't be something that clicks for everyone in an aspirational sort of way. I realized for the first time that, um, if I work for someone else, I can only make so much money. Like there really is, there's a ceiling to what I can do. And it wasn't just that I can make so much money. I will never have the risk. I'll never have to have the risk and therefore the learning that Sarah Blakely is going to have being the, you know, the 100% owner of Spanx, for instance. Right. And so there was this desire to go and try and do it myself um, for the sake of the learning, for the sake of the ambition of what it could be like from a um, from the perspective of learning and growing a business, and it was something that scared me, frankly. Um, but my move from my my big move really from Spanx into what would become um, the first startup that I co-founded, Super Sapiens. One of the things that helped me to make that transition was having a uh, having a couple co-founders and, and a partner that. Um, one partner in particular that I really trusted and, and knew well and worked well with. And that helped me to, to, to kind of get over that fear of, can I do this? Can I not do this? Um, and I think now launching another company in stealth where I am now, I think that's, I, I'm one degree removed from that, that sort of fear of having gone through the exercises and knowing, okay, I think I can do this. But there is certainly this sense of, I'm not the person that's like super optimistic. I'm like, I got this, I can figure everything out. I'm kind of looking at the risk and, and assessing the risk from the outset and being pretty, 
pretty open eyed about um, where I'm going to potentially need a lot more help and where I'm tr trying to be sober about what I'm able to accomplish on my own. So uh, let's step back for a second if we could, yeah. because there's this moment of transition uh, with the sandbox uh, that you're managing for Sarah Blakely and starting to understand how you could put together a team against particular opportunities that come to your attention through that, that work. Uh, you've got an executive coach who's helping you to really uh, step up, as you put it, seven rungs uh, with your professional uh, persona, really develop uh, what you, you, the skills that you need to develop to take on such a, a scope of responsibility. And then at a certain point, you feel, you see the opportunity, you understand that you want to see what you can accomplish going in alone. And yet, of course, as you start to step into these things, the lessons don't end there, right? Yeah. You, there are still lots of learnings that come from your first forays. And uh, each one starts with some specific opportunity you identify and then can develop in so many ways from there. I wonder if we could talk about your first big transition uh, into really uh, working on something big outside of uh, the safety of someone else's sandbox. And uh, my understanding is the first big thing you stepped into from there was probably Super Sapiens. So I'm, I'm wondering if you could give us a sense of kind of initially what drew you there uh, and how that evolved. Yeah, I, I have, um, I, I could spend all day long getting coffee with um, entrepreneurs, founders, talking through problems, listening to ideas, bouncing ideas off of each other. Um, and uh, a buddy of mine um, said, hey, I met this guy at a dinner party. He's got this idea. I think I want to bring him into um, I want to bring him in for lunch. I want you to come in and invite our invite our mutual friend Todd. Let's see if we can help him work through this business idea he had. So these are two of my friends um, that at the time we were all training for our first hundred mile race, and so we were spending a lot of time together. When you run a hundred mile race, you you know go out for a twenty five mile training run on a Saturday, so you get to know people really well. And so these were two of my good friends, and one of them had met this guy at. Um, at this dinner party. And so the four of us show up, two buddies of mine and this third, this fourth guy, um, Phil Sutherland. And Phil is, quick background on Phil, Phil is, um, was diagnosed with type one diabetes as, a, as, an, um, as an infant. Um, at the time, one of the youngest, um, uh, one of the youngest people to be diagnosed with diabetes um, was determined to get a hold of it and not let it rule his life. And part of that was channeling that passion into cycling as a, as a youngster and really made a name for himself in cycling, especially through his teens. And um, shortly around, shortly in, in the college timeframe, you realize, man, I wonder if I can wed this idea of taking care of my diabetes and being a ambassador for the, the disease and also my love of cycling. I wonder if I can wed these two things together and fast forward 15 years, 10, 15 years. And Phil is the owner of Team Novo Nordisk. Team Novo Nordisk is an all type one diabetic professional cycling team. Um, and what does that mean? That means that Novo Nordisk who makes, um, makes uh, medicine for people with type one diabetes, sponsors a professional cycling team. Um, think Tour de France and then a rung down in Europe, um, I think is the best way to think about it. 
um, comprised solely of, um, of um, athletes with type one diabetes. And this really becomes this sort of mixture of cycling and being an ambassador for diabetes. And as such, these athletes, um, Phil's athletes wear a device called a continuous glucose monitor. And this is what we've seen on, you know, on the back of someone's arm. Usually it looks like about the size of a quarter, looks like a sticker on there. And what this does is it reads out to these athletes what their glucose levels are on a minute by minute basis and actually sends that information to their, um, the head unit on their bike. So as they're in a race, they can see, oh, I need to eat because right, a, a diabetic, a, type, a person with type 1 diabetes is not going to be... Um, their body is not regulating their blood sugar in the same way that someone without diabetes would be. And so knowing this information, especially if you're in the middle of a professional um, um, athletic event is extraordinarily important. Phil's question that happened at the dinner party was, would people that don't have diabetes be interested in this technology? That was the question. Um, and we sat around lunch and we started to ask questions about this technology. And the thing that became apparent to me, and I think to everyone else at the table was, especially since we, we were out training long hours as endurance athletes was, well, yeah, this is the first human fuel gauge. If we can crack this thing, we would always be able to look down and know, oh, wow, our blood sugar is really low. We're going to bonk or hit the wall soon. We're going to run out of fuel. It's going to be an awful situation. Um, if we could see that happening in real time, that would be a game changer. And so I did the thing that, you know, oftentimes you do with um, a founder that you're advising, which is, all right, here are your marching orders. These are the things you got to go figure out as your next step. And Phil was, um, you know, very studious, pulled out his pen and took down the notes. And the notes were, um, you know, your challenges are one, there are only two companies in the U.S. that really make this device, the continuous glucose monitor, Abbott and Dexcom, Abbott being the market leader. Um, you're going to have to figure out a way to work with, you know, if you want to go down this route, you got to figure out a way to work with one of them. That's not going to be easy because you're going to be a startup and they're going to be a multi-billion dollar company. Number two, continuous glucose monitors in the United States require a prescription. You probably don't want to get into that business. Um, that's going to be challenging. So you've got to have a plan for how you get around that, that prescription process. Um, we would later learn that in Europe, there isn't a prescription needed for it. And then the third thing was nobody knows anything about glucose unless they're someone who has diabetes. And so you have this fundamental disconnect with the average person on the street where you're going to have to be a brand that simplifies um, this technology and really does a good job of explaining it. And not even sure if there's an audience outside of, say, cyclists, runners, and triathletes. And so um, that sent Phil to um, do his homework. Todd, um, who would later become a co-founder with me in Super Sapiens, Todd and I looked at each other and said, that's never going to happen. Like there are too many hurdles for that to happen. And within a couple of weeks, Phil sent Todd and I uh, a message that said, hey, I've got a meeting with the president of Abbott Diabetes Care. And that's when I finally really looked into Phil and saw that he had a huge following on Twitter because within the, the diabetes space, he was he was a true ambassador and he was, he was a known entity in the space and was able to leverage his connections to, um, you know, get meetings with top brass at, um, at Abbott. And um, many of the, the, the elements of that, of, of the relationship that would come with Abbott are confidential, but I can say that, you know, he came back from that meeting and he said, guys, we got something here. We really got something here. And I remember getting on the phone with um, one of the guys at Abbott to hear firsthand how they 
um, understood the future of glucose monitor technology. And it was enough for me to go, wow, this is a huge opportunity. This is a multi-billion dollar opportunity that doesn't come along very often. And so Todd and I joined Phil as co-founders on that business. Um, and it was, you know, zero to one. It was everything from, you know, figuring out, you know, doing consumer testing in England with an agency who could ask people without diabetes that were cyclists, hey, would you be interested in this kind of a technology without explaining what the technology was? So there was, a, there was all of those sort of fundamental proving and getting data points that this is something that could be viable. Um, but we jumped in and that was, was a little over two years ago, uh, two years ago now. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's exciting. So you've since been able to leverage uh, what you've learned from all of these opportunities to, to work on another startup uh, yeah. that is uh, getting good exposure and, and some early attention from important partners now. So uh, you uh, have signed, uh, or, or you currently work with M13, which is described as a full service venture engine that helps founding teams navigate risks through all stages of growth and excel yeah. at execution. And M13 signed PepsiCo as its first corporate partner. Um, and uh, PepsiCo is bankrolling the first M13 founder and residence program. So mm -hmm. I wonder if you could reflect a bit on how the lessons you've learned from your previous startups have helped you with the M13 work, especially this, this question of identifying and navigating risks through all stages of growth. Yeah, I mean, the second half of the story with Super Sapiens is I didn't stick around. Um, uh, not for lack of interest or excitement. Um, I, you know, one of the things that became apparent after uh, six to nine months of being in the trenches with Phil and Todd was that Phil and I just understood business very differently. And the way we understood business and how we want to direct the business were very different. And at that fundamental stage, it became really clear we're not a good founder fit. Um, and that is something that uh, for me was, uh, it was heartbreaking because I was so excited about the opportunity. I was creating the brand. I was spending, you know, all uh, sleepless nights, super excited about how we were going to build this thing. Um, and ultimately had to walk away from it. Um, and I had to walk away from it from the very simple fact that, um, in, you know, in the company, Phil had more, more power, more control, more chips on the table than I did. And so the way you solve that problem of it not fitting was I had to leave. And it was, um, I felt embarrassed. I felt scared, um, fearful, angry. Um, and it afforded a, a heck of a moment in my career to kind of step back talk to the right people and figure out, um, you know, how best to process this moment. And I mentioned that because for a couple of reasons, one, because yeah, I'm still a co-founder of Super Sapiens. I'm still super proud of, of that, that brand and that business and of, you know, wish Phil and Todd all the luck in the world. Um, but that heartbreak is real in regards to really devoting a lot of your time to building and creating something and then having to walk away from it. Um, it was the right decision to make. It was the right decision for Phil, for the business, for me. Um, and I wouldn't do it differently, but I, I'll tell you that the things that I learned from that process were one, do not take uh, founder, founder fit lightly. The people you get in bed with 
um, and the people that you spend long nights working with, the, the person you're going to have to pull aside and say, hey, you were just an asshole on that meeting. Or the person you're going to have to pull aside and say, hey, you know, I just lost a loved one and I cannot, I cannot participate for a few days. The founder-founder the relationship is an intimate relationship and it is important, it's essential to make sure that's a good fit. And so that's something I took with me. And then the second thing is, you know, look, the arrangement that we set up between Todd, Phil, and I was that Todd and I would run the day-to-day -day and Phil would be the CEO. And, um, but from a day-to-day -day in the weeds perspective, he still had the cycling team, right? And so I, that gave me the impression that I had more control, more influence. And the truth is I didn't, it was Phil's company and uh, Phil had the majority of, of ownership in that company. And so it was a, it was a lesson for me of knowing know what your influence is, know who you're actually working with. Um, and it's not to say that it, it, it's, this is not to pass blame. It's to say that um, in the same way that you can't just like, you know, you can't just approach any other person, you know, any person on the street and say, hey, I think we should get married. Let's get married. Like you would never do that. But with partners um, in businesses, sometimes you meet over a cocktail or at a meeting or you and, and you, you, you start like charting the next seven years of your life and it's a pretty big deal. So leaving, um, leaving Super Sapiens for me gave me this moment in my career of really wanting to make sure I knew how much control I had and frankly, wanting to have more control, more control from the sense of wanting to de-risk, wanting, um, wanting to have a little bit more of, not wanting the, that process to happen again. Mm -hmm. um, and I also wanted to be really thoughtful about the partners that I bring in. And so um, I was, you know, truthfully, I wasn't sure if I wanted to jump over to be a venture capitalist. I wasn't sure if I wanted to launch something again. I wasn't sure if um, I should just go join a, a small startup and um, was actively looking at entrepreneur in residence and founder in residence type of roles as a place to kind of dabble in a little bit of all of that while I was, I was figuring myself out. And I saw a post for, from M13 Mm -hmm. for a founder and residence program um, where the program was being sponsored by PepsiCo um, to spin up health and wellness businesses. And I had long, for a long time, admired the studio model where a venture capital firm like M13 has an idea, um, they test it internally and they spin up their own businesses um, in addition to funding other consumer brands. And I was fascinated by that process and um, really, really curious about the programming and the learning of how do you go from zero to one in 12 weeks? How do you validate a business that would take, you know, would take even, even a fast startup would take them maybe a year and a half. How do you do that at record speed? And so signed up for this, um, for this, uh, put my name in the hat, at least for this founder residence program. I did the thing where I was so confident it was a good fit for me every contact I had to anybody in M13, I'm like, I'm calling in favors. You need to tell them I'm awesome. Like, just let me interview these people. I'll get this thing. <laughs> and, um, 600 people applied and they took 13 of us. And um, the process was essentially to come in and we learned M13's way of building uh, new companies. We had um, the support of PepsiCo and we were, you know, basically tasked with finding white space in health and wellness, um, fitness, of course, diet, nutrition, find white space. And then we're given the freedom to build with these tools and parameters and frameworks to do that. And I'll tell you one of the first things I did even before 
we started the program was I, I sized up the rest of the founders, 12 other founders, knowing that I was going to have to, to be successful in this program, I was going to have to find a co-founder. We were going to have to agree on an opportunity area that we could both get passionate and excited about. This is something that M13 and PepsiCo could also get excited about. This is something that had to have some viability in the market and then something we'd have to be able to go raise capital on. So like the, the, the Venn diagram here is super, super messy and lots of chess pieces to play. And I knew that the founder fit was something that was super important to me. And so truthfully, like I, I saw three or four people, I started reading bios and, and thought there's two or three of these folks that are, are pretty interesting. And my who would end up becoming my co-founder, Christina, uh, we had a call before the thing even started. Um, and uh, part of the, the process within M13's program was to do lots of EQ type stuff. So we had coaches all the time. We were talking about founder-founder conflict. We were talking about vulnerability. This is a, a big stake that M13 wants to put in the ground is they're going to bet on founders for being 90% of the success in the technology or the, the product that being 10%. So they put a lot of effort into making sure the founders fit well with each other. And, um, and I feel like there was a certain degree of getting lucky of being able to that Christina and I saw something in each other that was super complimentary and we liked each working with each other. Um, but I feel like the learnings coming out of super sapiens of, you know, being mindful of your, um, who you get in bed with, um, gave me a very sober, but I think mature approach to trying to select a co-founder. And then the other part about it is, you know, it, what's wonderful about a studio model is that most studio models, the founders are going to give up 50% of the company upfront for the you know amazing resources that come from the whoever's sponsoring that studio. So N13 is they're rock stars at, at uh, consumer technology and consumer businesses. And so I saw this as a way to um, again to take advantage of a really wonderful um, opportunity to learn a ton in a short amount of time and to have access to these wonderful resources. Um, and so it was it was a um, it's been a it's been a, a, a labor of love, and we're now in the process of um, being able to probably in the next month be able to announce what it is that we're building. Um, but um, it it will be uh, I'll say that we're super excited about treating and addressing and thinking about some of the fundamental elements of what it means to be human. Uh, to come back to that, right, is um, part one of the, one of the things that's true about all of us is that. Um, whether we voice it or not, we all want to be well, we all want to be healthy. It's a fundamental human desire to be well and to be healthy. Um, and um, so being able to create value for consumers and a brand and business that we're really excited about being able to launch um, that can capitalize on that, for me, uh, rings really true down to my core. Um, and so it's, it's a place where I can put a lot of energy and excitement around this next phase of my career. So I'm really pleased that you chose to share some of that journey with uh, the audience, because I think it's a very important lesson for young entrepreneurs and students who are thinking about entrepreneurship and innovation work to consider, which is that, you know, here's somebody who's an experienced entrepreneur who found a great opportunity. 
uh, with both uh, a personal uh, fit with the product, uh, you know, and uh, a, a product market fit that was perceived, and really had an opportunity to handle many of the business fundamentals, and yet there were still some unanticipated outcomes. And I think that that's a really important lesson, and that what entrepreneurs ultimately do is find ways to spin that into some other form of success. I think it's also interesting that you then in your next experience gravitated towards a studio where the stated purpose was to help founding teams navigate risks through all stages, right? So it certainly provided a certain kind of environment for moving forward from your previous learnings. Um, speaking of moving forward, I'd like to ask one more question and then uh, flip this to the audience. And that is, in terms of moving forward, there's obviously whatever uh, project it is that you're working on with Christina uh, inside of M13. But in my experience, uh, entrepreneurs are never rest and there's always something else that they wanna solve for. So I guess my other question is big picture now, let's end big picture since we started there with your degrees and other big questions. You know, what problems do you still want to solve? Or to put it another way, where do you still feel you can drive some higher form of value? Yeah. Um, it's a great question. Uh, I, I think so much of what I'm pursuing, especially in my interest in consumer businesses, um, very candidly is the continuation of my own education of learning how to do business and trying to do it better the next time. Part of that is being introspective and working on myself with my therapist, with my coach, with my partner, with my business partner. Um, and so I think there is this, there is this sort of, um, uh, there's this drive to continue to, um, to grow and to learn and to explore and to treat this journey in entrepreneurship as an adventure where there's, you know, you crest one mountain, maybe you dive down into a valley, but there's another mountain, um, there's another mountain to climb. And so I think for me, um, I'm right now in my career, I'm, I'm very motivated by what I'm learning. I'm excited about, excited about that. Um, but I do think that it, you know, it sounds hokey to come back to this idea of being human is hard. It sounds hokey. Um, I guess my background gives me some, some, you know, I guess I can, I can say like, you know, I, I study philosophy, so I can say this, but um, <laughs> it is something for me that is, it's a, th it's the thread that, that has stayed with me. And it's the piece that rings so true. Um, and why that matters is if I'm going to continue to work in consumer in consumer businesses, that means I've got to think about what is the consumer actually thinking about on a daily basis and whether I'm making an app that is, you know, um, is a game to pass time. Am I doing that because um, someone is lonely or because someone is bored or because someone is anxious, right? These are real human, real human elements. Or if I, you know, create a, um, you know, I create some sort of wearable device or, or whatever the thing is, right? Whatever the thing is, like, the, the point is that um, it touches another human's life, um, especially for consumer startups, and it touches who they are at a real human level. And so one of the exercises I'm going through right now with the concept that we're working on is um, looking a layer beneath, several layers beneath the problem that we think we're solving to get down to the true problem, which is I want to be affirmed. I want to be accepted. I want to be loved. I want to feel free. I want to have community. 
Like these are these are like what it means to really be human. And they ladder up to things like, I wanna be on a social media app where I can share my photos. Um, but really when we can speak to those levels, I think we can really have impact in the world. And we can sometimes do it in playful ways with creative apps and, and ways that we could you know, change people's lives um, through other kinds of products and services. It's a great uh, bigger picture way to, I think, tie some of this up. I want to uh, open this up to questions in chat from the audience. So if you have any questions in chat, please, please add them in. Um, and I'm going to give that just a minute here. Um, I will say this in the interim, what you said about founder fit and uh, being very sure that you understand the person that you're going to be in such a, a close working relationship with being something like marriage and how you wouldn't simply walk down the street and ask someone to marry you. Of course, that that would be wise uh, as someone who has done something not so far from that. Uh, one of my uh, sort of mantras I live by is the best time to get divorced is before you're married. And so I think that there's a certain amount uh, as you learn these lessons of prescience that goes into vetting the next time around. You can find the right environment, something like M13 that helps with those structures. Uh, or there may be other uh, sort of rules of thumb that you yourself can apply to finding that. So as we wait for any last questions from the audience, um, I wonder, is there uh, anything you'd like to say on that uh, topic of what rules have you kind of set up for yourself about this? Have that, You've learned some lessons, but have you created any sorts of guideposts to doing that sort of assessment? Spoke about a great conversation in advance with uh, the co-founder of the project you're working on at M13, yeah. but I'm wondering kind of what went into that. Yeah, so Christina has a last name, it's Poindexter, um, and she is a, um, if you look her up, she's just a she's just a total total badass um she did uh undergraduate work in sociology at yale went to went on to work on the google assistant at google um founded her own empathy ai startup and ended up running global marketing for um headspace um she's she's incredible and i think the the thing that i was looking for in a founder in some of those early conversations are um, do I admire this person? Do I admire this person? Do I like this person? Um, do I, can I let my guard down with this person to say, I don't know how to do this thing, but you do. And so I'm going to get behind you on, on, on that thing that you do so well. Um, I think it was, you know, for us, it was about, and I'll say for me, it was about wanting to do this 50, 50. And so rather than she's CEO and I'm COO or I'm president. She's like, we just decided to be partners in this. We decided to be 50, 50 partners. And it's this really interesting balance of to do that right, you have to be vulnerable and you have to say the things that could hurt you if used as weapons back against you. And so that's been an interesting process um, for me, but I think it's been um, for, for better or worse, I think I'm sort of naturally attuned to being pretty candid and pretty direct um, and so I think that enabled early conversations around, hey, how is this working? Like, what am I doing that I can do less of? What am I doing that I can do more of? Um, we've had moments where we ask each other, um, all right, let's, let's talk now about, you know, how, uh, what is the best part about working with me? Here's the best thing about working with you. Um, when we get off calls where we're running them together, we'll debrief and I'll say, man, you did that thing in an awesome way. 
or mm -hmm. she'll say, Brian, you spoke way too much on blah, blah, blah. And having the vulnerability to do that, I think, um, look, I mean, we've known each other for, you know, only four or five months now, um, but it is, it's an ongoing process of trying to figure out how to do this together. Because from our perspective, if we've got two leaders that gives us at the, you know, the chief executive position that gives us two brains where there's typically one. Um, it, is, it is challenging because um, we both have ego, we both have ambition. Um, and so um, we're figuring it out as we go. Um, but I think that the mostly just being upfront about our stories, about what we want and that vulnerability is the piece that has been um, something that I'm really grateful for. And I'll also say that like, I could have gotten the, you know, we could have gotten the formula 75% right and it wouldn't feel this way. Um, and I, I, so I do consider there's a certain degree of luck that I bumped into this woman and it turned out that we worked really well together. So I'd like to wrap up with two quick questions that have come in that are really interesting. One from a student perspective and one from a, a staff member I recognize in the conversation. And the student's question was, um, you know, Sarah Blakely is a really big name in business. And so how do you deal with the idea of being you know, a student, or in this case, a relatively young professional, relatively not as professional, and applying to work with someone that big? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, and I'll say this, um, there was a certain point for me where I realized I wasn't going to get where I wanted to go by applications. Um, it would have to be through relationships. And uh, what I mean by that is I a very practical matter of it is I saw that Spanx had a job posting for um, this crazy sounding title. I don't even remember what it was, something like um, general manager of digital philanthropic initiatives. And um, Sarah was in my crosshairs because I wanted a small company that um, wanted a small company, consumer, female lifestyle driven um, and just the, the options in Atlanta weren't much. And so I was looking at what was going on at Spanx. I saw this, sent a note, figured out on LinkedIn who the head of recruiting was, sent a note and said, hey, I'd love to get coffee with you. I think I can, I think I can check all the boxes here. Um, and so, and it's a similar thing that I did with, you know, with Scout Mob is I, I used my network, friends of friends of friends to get an introduction to the right person. Um, and I think that any time you can leverage that, that human element rather than putting your name through an application process, uh, I think your, your chances go way up. And I think the second thing is, um, you know, uh, one way of looking at it is Sarah is a total business badass. And what right do I have to work with her? And how could I even possibly um, be someone who could help her in her businesses? The other side of it is, Sarah is a total business badass. And part of that is knowing what she's not good at and hiring the right people for it. And that also means that for her and for so many other people, I would say the vast majority, you showing up and saying, hey, I want that job. I'm going to crush it here. Your company is awesome. I'm going to work so hard. I have some of the, the, I have some of the qualifications. The other ones I'm going to learn. Here are three people that can tell you how awesome I am. You just solve somebody's problem. Um, and I think that's the thing we forget is that when people are hiring, that's a real problem for them. And so if you can help solve that problem for them, um, I think that's a helpful lens rather than thinking, oh, when I get this job, it will solve the problem for me, which is I need a job. No, it is they need to find the right person and I can step into that gap for them. 
So honestly, that answered, I think, the other question that had been raised, which is that you seem to be holding an interesting tension when you say things like, I'll be your smartest intern ever, and I have a lot to learn. And that person asked, how do you hold that tension between humility and confidence? I think to some extent, you've just answered that, right? Uh, you focus on the other person as you balance that tension. But is there anything else that, uh, that you'd like to say in response to that question? Um... Yeah, I mean, look, um, there is, I'm a firm believer in finding the right kind of culture where you can be who you are. And for me, that means that I need to be able to say, um, hey, I've got a really strong opinion here. I'm the smartest person in this room. I have vetted this research and this is the right thing to do. Um, that's one approach. The other approach is, look, <laughs> I'm not really sure that this is the right way to go, but I'm gonna go find the right people for this. I'm gonna come back to you with a recommendation based upon data. Um, and both of those things are viable, but for you know a little more color around my time with um, my time with working with Sarah, one of the reasons I hired an executive coach is because I knew I was gonna screw it up. I didn't know how to work with someone with with that kind of success. <laughs> and what I learned early on was, especially around someone who is, um, Sarah's exceptional. Like very few of us will, will get the opportunity to work with someone like that. Um, and I take it as a huge, it was a privilege and a joy to work with her. My number one job responsibility was to learn how to be in relationship with her and learn how to speak on her terms and learn how to work around her schedule. And so the number one job description is um, be someone who can work on Sarah's terms at, at her language. And so I think it's just a balance of being being aware of what you don't know um, and learning what you can learning where you can communicate your ignorance in a way that doesn't scare off your colleagues or your bosses. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think we need to go around saying, "Oh, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to do that. I'm going to have to have to ask about that. I'm going to hire someone for that. I don't know how." I think that can that can that can uh, concern folks, and so you want to be you know you want to be practical about that. But at the same time. Um, in business, especially the older I get and the much more mature I get, man, when, when someone that I respect and someone I work with tells me that they don't know or that they're afraid or they're, um, they, they're not sure what to do, that humility like really pulls me in and I actually trust them more, even though they don't know what they're doing and they're telling me that, right? And so it's, it's a balance. It's really a balance. And I think for me, I try to lean on being authentic, which is um, which brings you to, to a sense of having integrity in what I say, not trying to mislead anyone or, or, or show myself to be any more than I am. Um, but then at the same time, when I have a strong opinion, being a person who is unafraid to, to put, put my foot down and say, this is what we need to do. This is what we need to go do. Interesting. Well, Brian, this has been a ton of fun. Um, I've been looking forward to this conversation because we had chatted briefly previously and I really enjoyed it because uh, we're both people who have come through uh, very diverse backgrounds and have tried to find that place where uh, our weird background is, is an asset. Um, but I also just really appreciate the extent to which you dove in to the conversation and the questions and you were able to share your own uh, sort of vulnerability as, as an entrepreneur uh, or within your entrepreneurial journey. So uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Any final thoughts or comments you'd want to share with the audience before we sign off? No, I would just say that, you know, anytime uh, these transitions for anybody that is thinking about it, um, all of these things are, they're not easy. Um, and to the extent that 
Um, you can find me on LinkedIn to the extent that, that I can be helpful in, in talking through any of these pieces or sharing resources. I'd be happy to do that. Um, um, but thank you. Thanks, thanks for having me, Shannon. It was, it was nice to chat with you. It was great. Thanks again. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Emory Innovators. To hear additional episodes, search Emory Innovators on Spotify to find or subscribe to this podcast. For more information about the Hatchery, Emory University Center for Innovation, visit hatchery.emory.edu.